As I'm sure you have over the last few days, I've watched with growing shock and horror as events have unfolded in America with the brutal murder of George Floyd and then the riots that have been sparked in cities right across America as deep-seated racial tensions have begun boiling over. I think anyone with even a shred of humanity would have been utterly appalled at that side of a police officer restraining George Floyd by kneeling on his neck. His distressed cries of, I can't breathe, as the police officer kept his knee on his neck until he was motionless, still haunt me. And if I, as a white British man, can feel so much anger and so much sadness, I can very well understand how a young black man or woman living in an American city right now would be so enraged to the point even of rioting. And while I'm certainly not condoning rioting, on the back of many years of unreported injustice, I can at least understand why this is one too many. Why this has been a trigger for all that pent-up rage against the daily victimisation, prejudice, inherent inequality and institutional racism that has gone unchallenged for far too long now. And although, admittedly, my own personal experience is so very different because of the colour of my skin, I do understand. I empathise, I lament, I mourn over the brokenness of our world right now. And I must admit, I've spent much of the last few days feeling pretty helpless and powerless. And then, really to compound matters, I've also been grappling with the next passage in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which in the whole providence of God is all about murder and anger. I tell you, in light of all that's going on in the world right now, I very much feel the weight of this message. I'm also acutely aware that the emotion that many of us are currently feeling could well make it very hard to get beyond the events of the last few days and actually hear the very real challenge that Jesus is confronting each and every one of us with in these verses. And so before we go any further, I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for George Floyd's family, for his wife, for his young daughter. And I join my voice with the voices around the world right now crying out to you for an end to injustice, an end to unrighteousness, an end to oppression. Father, would you break the teeth of the evil which is racism? I pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now, Father, would you still our hearts to enable us to receive your word? Would your word go deep 
into us. Today I pray. Amen. Okay. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, before we get into what Jesus is actually saying here, let's be very clear what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that all anger is wrong. There are plenty of occasions where anger is the emotionally healthy and mature response to evil, as illustrated by the fact that Jesus himself gets angry on more than one occasion. I think John Stott, not for the first time, hits the nail on the head when he describes Jesus' anger as his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Which means that Jesus is angry over the unjust killing of George Floyd and the systemic racism that lies behind it. And it's wholly appropriate for us to be angry over it too. In fact, I believe Jesus calls us to be angry over it. But that being said, I think there's a fine line between anger and sin. As Paul puts it, be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. And I think what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew is the unhealthy kind of anger, the, the anger that's sinful, the anger that would lead to a white police officer kneeling on the neck of an unarmed black man and murdering him. And really, the wake-up call that Jesus is giving us in this passage is that we all need to beware the danger of allowing the unhealthy kind of anger to take root in our hearts because it is not harmless. Listen, if ever there was a time to see the importance of these words of Jesus and how incredibly insightful they are, surely it's now, surely it's today. So all that being said, let's now look a little more closely at what Jesus is really saying in these verses. Now, without wishing to get too technical, there are two words for anger that Jesus could have chosen to use here. One is a quick flare-up kind of anger. It's when you get cut up in traffic or your toddler spills juice on the carpet after you've warned them ten times to be careful or your flatmate leaves or they're washing up for the third day in a row. You're mad in the moment, but 10 minutes later, it's gone. The other word speaks of a deeper, brooding anger, 
where you keep replaying the incident in your mind and kind of get stuck there and refuse to move on. And even if you want to, it's like you can't. It's like this grudge that you carry around with you. Now look, both kinds of anger are wrong, but the second one is toxic. And that is the word used by Jesus here in this passage. The other thing about this word is it is a present participle. Now, for those who I can imagine are glazing over right now and haven't a clue what on earth I'm talking about or couldn't care less, or perhaps are growing increasingly angry with my obsession with grammar, a more literal way of putting it would be whoever is remaining angry. And so putting all of this together, just to reiterate, Jesus isn't saying don't ever be angry. As I think we've seen, when faced with injustice and oppression, anger is a very godly response. And so for fear of repeating myself, Jesus is not saying that all anger is wrong. What he is saying is that whoever is angry and is nursing a grudge against a brother or sister in the community will be subject to the exact same judgment as a murderer. I tell you, Jesus' words here challenge me deeply. In all my righteous anger against unjust situations, I must still guard my own heart to see to it that not even a hint of sinful anger creeps in. Because in the words of Jesus, that puts me in danger of the fires of hell. Well, you let that sink in. Jesus is saying that if you or I give in to anger, and if we let it infect our heart, then we are in danger of hell. And I suggest not just in the future, but also in the here and now. Now, just to say, whatever you think about heaven and hell, it's important to keep in mind that the life to come is simply a continuation of the trajectory that you are already on in this life. In other words, who you will become and the life that you will experience forever is merely a continuation of who you are today and the life that you are living into right now. I mean, I'm guessing that most people who have chosen not to follow Jesus and really don't want to submit their lives to him would be pretty indignant, wouldn't they, if they were told that they would end up in heaven when they die. Because that's where we will live under the rule and reign of Jesus for eternity. And let's face it, if you don't want to live that way now, if you want to live your whole life separate to Jesus, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that your future will be a continuation of that choice. That being said, I could be wrong, but I think the emphasis on what Jesus is saying in this passage is not so much on life after death as life before death. Uh, he's saying if you give in to anger, you are in danger of the fire of hell in the here and now. Either way, 
it does feel like a pretty somber warning, doesn't it? Like, probably all of us have called someone an idiot or cursed someone, at least in our minds, at some point in our life, if not in the last 24 hours. And if truth be told, we don't think anything of it, do we? It's just normal behaviour. I'm guessing it seems fairly trivial to most of us. But Jesus is showing us here that it is anything but trivial and that God takes it incredibly seriously and that it seems a bit over the top or no big deal to us perhaps betrays the fact that we need to listen to the rest of this talk with a whole lot of urgency. Because Jesus is saying that every time we nurse contempt for someone or make a snide comment or a sarcastic dig or spread gossip or leave a nasty voice message, it's coming from the same place as full-on murder and it leads to hell on earth. It's like we harm other people. We harm our community, we harm the church, we harm our workplace, we harm our city, and in the process, we harm ourselves. Look, you don't need me to tell you that, that anger left unchecked is absolutely toxic. We, we see it all around us, don't we? Where people have lost all control of themselves, it leads to domestic violence, abuse, divorce, betrayal, and murder. And Jesus is saying, all of this starts in that moment where you get angry and you give in to it. Anger is like a leech on your skin. If you deal with it right away, it's painful, but it is doable. But the longer it's got its clutches into you, the deeper it goes and the more destructive it gets. And so Jesus is saying, don't give in to anger, because if you go down that road, it will lead you straight to hell. And so on that cheery note, how do we break the cycle of anger? Well, Jesus gives us two very practical small steps that you and I can take to move forward in this area. Here's the first one, verse 23, hypothetical situation. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be, is the key word in this story, reconciled, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Now, just by way of background, where was Jesus teaching from? Anyone know? Well, if you said Galilee, you're correct. Jesus was up in the north. And the only altar in first century Israel was 80 miles away down in Jerusalem. And so I want you to imagine you're a farmer up in Galilee and you make your annual pilgrimage down to the temple in Jerusalem. You walk the 18 miles with your sacrifice, which would have been an animal, probably a goat. You walk 80 miles with your goat. You enter the temple. You approach the altar. You're just about to make your sacrifice when all of a sudden you remember, oh my gosh, I fell out with my neighbour last week. And Jesus says, in that scenario, 
here's what you should do. Leave the goat at the altar, walk the 80 miles back home to resolve the issue with your neighbour, and then walk the 80 miles back to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice. Listen, Jesus is being intentionally extreme here to illustrate just how incredibly serious it is that we reconcile with others. Because here's the thing, your whole relationship with God is inextricably linked. It's completely tied up with your relationship with other people. And so if you're watching this and right now you feel distant from God, perhaps you try to pray and it feels like there's a bit of a barrier between you, you struggle to worship. So there's this disconnect with God. Now, all kinds of reasons why that could be. But one reason could be that you are not at peace with somebody and therefore you are not at peace with God. Just for the sake of transparency, personally, I've had to do my own fair share of repenting in preparation for this talk, in particular around the warning 1 Peter to husbands, where we're told to be careful how we treat our wife, or I quote, it may hinder your prayers. And while those who know Helen, my wife, well will testify that she is close to angelic most of the time, sadly I'm not. And how I treat her has a direct effect on my prayers. It's like my relationship with Helen is tied up with my relationship with God. And so Jesus is saying, if you are not right with someone, go to extreme lengths to be reconciled. That's the first story. Next story, very, very similar. Verse 25, Jesus says, when you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. If the first story was all about the importance of reconciliation, second story is all about pursuing reconciliation quickly. Now, you could be different, but I don't tend to talk through my differences with someone until I absolutely have to. It's like I put it off for as long as possible. And guess what happens? Does it get better or worse? Well, nine times out of 10, it gets worse. Occasionally, the thing just blows over, but the odds aren't in your favor. Most of the time, if it's left to fester in my heart or theirs, by the time we actually sit down to talk about it, it's a much bigger deal. And so Jesus' advice here is incredibly wise. Deal with it and deal with it quickly. If we're gonna break the whole vicious cycle of anger, Whenever we are at odds with somebody, go to them. Make peace with them as best you can. And whatever you do, don't delay. Do it right away. Pretty simple, huh? Very easy to understand. Problem is, not quite so easy to do, is it? Because for this to be a reality, 
I think we've got to be intentional about this. That this will only happen if we find the space and time to ponder, to pray, to discern where it is that we, or should I say you, need to actively pursue reconciliation. You see, reconciliation isn't likely to be something that happens to us so much as something we pursue. And Jesus leaves us with no options here. He demands that his followers act on the intention to create reconciled relationships with those around us and quickly. In fact, he warns his followers, doesn't he, of final destruction if, for whatever reason, they choose to walk away from that path. But rather than finishing with a warning, I want to return to the place we started and invite you to seize hold of the opportunity that I believe is in front of us right now. As we're all acutely aware of the brokenness of our world at this point, and where many of us are perhaps feeling the tension between righteous anger and sinful anger like never before, could it be that Jesus is calling us to use our anger to fuel a newfound determination to build something way better in the church that acts as a model or a signpost to the rest of our society. Rather than turning us against one another and reinforcing racial division in the church, could the tragedy of George Floyd's murder drive us towards repentance and reconciliation? Could we resolve together to repent of the suspicion, the prejudice, the contempt, the selfishness, the abuse, the arrogance, the silence, the complicity and the judging of others that fuels ungodly anger and destroys relationships? And in its place, could we resolve to replace anger with love? Replace judgment with grace. Replace hostility with kindness. And in so doing, show the world the power of the cross to break down every divide and create a new reconciled community where we celebrate and honour one another rather than shake our fists at one another. I, for one, am praying that here at Church Central in the north, the south, and the West, we would very much be that kind of community. Let me leave you with some words written in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder by my friend Owen Hilton, who leads a church down in Brixton. Have a listen to what he says. Talking about issues of race, PJ Smythe recently said, this is our generation's issue and our generation's responsibility to ensure it is not the issue of the next generation. It will be an issue, but it, is, but it must be a much smaller one than it is today. C.S. Lewis, in his book God in the Dock, concurs. He says, no generation can bequeath to its successors what it has not got. How many of us really believe that? If we did really believe that, what things would we be doing differently? The battle for our generation is not multi-site churches. 
large numbers being gathered and excellent professional meetings that look diverse. Come on, God's purpose is way bigger and better than that. The scary truth is you can build all those things without any help from God. The previous generation battled for a new expression of church life, the charismatic and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. In God's economy, that is the perfect foundation for building truly diverse churches that have gone some way to deal with issues of racial injustice and inequality, the impact of which is far greater than we might imagine.